Let's take our Bibles to Psalm chapter 5, please. Psalm chapter 5. Now, Psalm chapter 5 is very closely related to Psalm 3 and Psalm 4. In fact, there are several words and turn of phrases in Psalms 3 and Psalm 4 that reappear in this psalm as well. And when we put the three psalms together, we find out they're actually a collection of songs, prayers that David prayed, later put to music, to be used in the temple, to be used by the choir master. And they all take place during the time of David's exile, uh, during Absalom's revolt. What makes them more interesting is when we put the three of them together is chapter 3, Psalm 3, is the king, is David, waking up on his first day of exile and what he's facing. Chapter 4, Psalm 4, is written at the end of day 1 of exile. And then Psalm chapter 5 is written the next morning, day 2 of his exile. And while the circumstances between day 1 and day 2 haven't changed, what has changed is David's perspective. And I think for us, in the current landscape of this virus that we're dealing with, we can relate to David in that, well, this is what today was, this is what the next day is, and the next day, and the next day. We seem to be stuck in this Groundhog Day feeling that, you know, we're just repeating the same series of events day after day. And while the events for David didn't change from day one to day two, his perspective did. He wakes up on day two, again, same situation, but now looking at it, from a more spiritually mature perspective. He is now seeing the broader scene that's at hand. And as we approach Psalm 5, I want to look at several stanzas. We're going to look at stanza number 1, David's prayer to God in verses 1 to 3. We're going to look at stanza 2, God's perception of the wicked in verses 4 through 7. Stanza 3, David's prosecution of the wicked, verses 8 through 10. And finally, number four, David's plea for the righteous in verses 11 and 12. And I've titled this psalm, A Prayer of Protection from Deception. A prayer of protection, or excuse me, a prayer for protection from deception. And I think that's important in light of our circumstances because there's so much deception out there. You know, there, there's those who think, you know, they're being deceived by the government. There's those out there that are being deceived by the media. There's those out there buying into every conspiracy theory out there. You know, and by and large, I'm sure there is a lot of deception out there. Um, and I'm not going to comment on, you know, whether this person's deceiving or that person's deceiving. What I'm saying is that as Christians, we need to rise above the fray. We need to get over this garbage and this nonsense and this ridiculousness and realize first and foremost, we have a heavenly Father in heaven who loves us, who is in control of all of these things, and knew all of these things were going to come to pass. And so whether there's people trying to deceive us or not deceive us, here's what we need to be doing. We need to be praying for protection from said deception and go on and live our Christian lives. And so we're going to see this prayer play out in these four stanzas. So let's first of all look at David's prayer to God in verses 1 to 3. He says, Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Heed the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray, 
In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. You see, my friends, prayer is putting your problem into words. And prayer carries with it a guarantee that it's going to be heard. That's what prayer is. Putting your problem into words. That's what David did here. He said, give ear to my words, O Lord. He asked God to hear not only his words, but then he says, consider my groanings as well. And this idea of groaning, and then if you look at the next statement, heed the sound of my cry for help, you get the idea that David is feeling anguished. He, he is burdened. He's dealing with another day of living in exile. He's dealing with another day of being surrounded by an enemy. He's dealing with another day of not knowing what to expect. And, and he's saying, listen, I'm frustrated. Um, I'm tired. Uh, and he is just pouring out to God a very deep, earnest cry. You know, David's not putting any airs on with God. You can put airs on with Tom, Dick, and Harry. That's your business. But when it comes to God, we don't have to put any airs on at all. Now notice he mentions God's ear. Give ear to my words. But now notice in verse 2, he mentions his own voice. In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. Here the language keeps this prayer very personal. He's not praying to the great someone in the great somewhere. No, he's lifting his voice to the ear of the living God, Yahweh, the King of Israel. And note the boldness in which he addresses God. He doesn't say, hey, bud, hey, pal. No, he says, my king. And, you know, as we approach our Heavenly Father, as we pray, he is our king. There's a, there's a note of personal submission and yet confidence. He's not a king. He's not someone else's king. He's my king. And as we approach God and as we pour out our anguish, as we pour out our heart's desire to Him, we still need to understand, He's my King. And because He reigns, we can go to Him in times of trouble, whether in the morning or in the evening. He both hears and has the power to act because He is King. Also, notice twice David says in verse 2 and then again in verse 3, In the morning, O Lord, you'll hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. David begins his day, and we saw last time he ended his day in prayer, but he also begins his day in prayer. He begins by asking the Lord to hear him and protect him. And i got to tell you, folks, that God's guidance over our lives, God's care of us is important. And it should be important enough that we start our day asking God for that. First thing we should be doing in our day is presenting our agenda for the day to God. You know, it is presumptuous of us to think that we can go out into the world, that we can deal with the enemies out there, without the Lord reigning over us. First thing, when we start our day, we need to cry out to God, ask God to hear us, 
and ask him to direct and guide our steps. And I love how verse 3 ends, eagerly watch. David is so confident that God's going to answer his prayer that he's waiting and watching. Eagerly. It's not a ho-hum attitude. He's eagerly. He's there. He's waiting. He knows it's coming. He doesn't know when, doesn't know how, but he knows it's going to come. Why? Because God is king. Now, let's go to 4 through 7 and look at God's perception of wickedness. God's perception of wickedness. He says, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. But as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will bow in reverence of you. Now notice here, David defines God against the evils of this world. And he's taking an inventory at the same time of his own heart. He goes through this list of what God doesn't like, and then he says, now, Lord, here's my heart, and here's why my heart is righteous. And before we get there, let's look at uh, what he says here. We have a bold expression in verse 4. You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. My friends, it is biblical for us as God's people to remind God of who He is and who He isn't. Listen, God knows who He is. God knows who He isn't. But He loves when His people go to the Scriptures and then approach Him, pray to Him, speak to Him, and tell Him who He is from Scripture. God, you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. I think back to Numbers chapter 14 and verse 19. Moses dealing with the grumblings of the Israelites. And he says in his prayer, Pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Notice what Moses was doing there. He was reminding God of what he had done in the past. Now, God doesn't have amnesia. And for the fact of the matter, because he's holy, he has every right to judge sin. But when we recall his mercy in prayer, we establish the basis upon which we can seek and expect his grace to us. David calls upon the Lord to stand with him against his enemies. And one by one, he lists his enemies. First, God does not take pleasure in wickedness. That is, he does not Delight in lawbreakers. That's the word wickedness there. Lawbreakers. So that's number one. God's got no time. Here's God's perception. He says, I've got no time for lawbreakers. Second, no evil dwells with you. God does not allow evil in his presence. God does not allow evil in his presence. The Hebrew word used here for evil denotes anything less than God's holiness. God is not going to let let anything less than His holiness enter into His presence. Third, 
the boastful should not stand before your eyes. In other words, the proud are not going to stand before the gaze of God. Number four, God hates, quote, all who do iniquity. Literally, God hates immorality. This is a moral response to immorality. He hates it. The workers of iniquity. All who do iniquity. Now, here's how he defines immorality. Immorality includes those who scheme together, those who boast together, and those who use words as their evil weapons. Now, that really expands upon immorality, doesn't it? You know, if we talk about immorality, you know, our minds right away go to a certain set of topics. And God says, well, yeah, that's immoral, but you know what? Immorality also includes... Schemes, to get, uh, boasting, and those who use their words as evil weapons. Gossip, lying, that's using your words as an evil weapon. And God says, it's immorality, and I hate workers of iniquity, workers of immorality. Number six, the Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. Excuse me, I jumped number five. Number five, God destroys liars. He destroys those who speak falsehood. Number six, he abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. The word abhor there is, is a rejection of something or someone based on a standard of morality. God is the standard of morality. He's holy. And so he rejects the man of bloodshed and deceit. That literally refers to those who cause the death of an innocent person via their false testimony. He hates that. You see, you get here a very strong ethical sense of God's holiness and His judgment against sin. God says no to wickedness, no to boasters, no to workers of iniquity, no to liars, and no to those who kill by deceit. Her, their prayers will not be heard. Their destruction is certain. And we need to take stock. We need to take inventory and make sure we're not in those six things. Are you committing wickedness? Are you breaking God's law? Are you a boaster? Are you a worker of iniquity? Are you scheming and boasting? Are you using your words as an evil weapon? Are you a liar? Are you someone that has killed another by false witness or deceit? If that's the case, then my friends, i got news for you. The Bible says your prayers will not be heard and your destruction is certain. We need to take a moral inventory every time we come before a holy God. Because you know the only thing that separates us from sinners is not our righteousness, it's God's mercy. God hears us not because we're good, but because we receive the goodness of His Son. Now David distinguishes himself from the, from the wicked, from the unrighteous. He says, but as for me. Now, that's not because of his righteousness, but God's mercy. By your abundant loving kindness, according to your mercy, I will enter into your house. We can't enter into the presence of God without his mercy, without his loving kindness. And my friends, because God's granted you mercy, don't get presumptuous. Notice David says, At your holy temple I will bow in reverence for you. He's not your good old buddy in the sky. He's your king. He's your Lord. Yes, he's your heavenly father. But he expects you to enter into his presence with 
reverence, with awe, with respect. Now, let's go to verses 8 through 10, and let's look at David's prosecution of the wicked. He says, O Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. There is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction in itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Hold them guilty, O God. By their own devices let them fall. In the multitude of their transgression thrust them out, for they are rebellious against you. Mercy results in worship, and worship results in obedience. Lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. We're surrounded by liars and boasters and deceivers and gossipers and the like. And it's only by God's guidance in His perfect will that He will keep us from being seduced. This is why we need to pray for protection. Because they're out there. He becomes a prosecuting attorney in verse 10. Their inward part, their throat, their tongue. He names the vehicles of deception. No wonder he cries and groans for help. His enemies come with murder in their heart and words that are not to be trusted. Oh, they have fancy words. They've got flattering words. But all they're doing is manipulating the truth for their own gain. And David cries out, Pronounce them guilty, O God. God alone sees the heart. And the prosecutor here, David, asks that a sentence be dropped upon the guilty. Fall, let them fall by their own counsels. I love the irony of this. Let their own deception be their end. In other words, let them believe their own lies. Let them become a victim to their own manipulation. Read Romans chapter 1, you'll see that's just what happens. God gives them up to their own sin. Finally, verse 11 and 12. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy, and may you shelter them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield. Here's David's plea for the righteous. In contrast to the liars, on the other hand, the joyful. And true joy only comes... From those who, what? Put their trust in the Lord, as verse 11 tells us. God is faithful, God is true. There's no deception in God, only security and stability. And when we trust in the Lord, we're going to shout for joy because we're literally sheltered or covered by the living God. God's faithful, and you know what? That's all summed up in that name, Yahweh. Yahweh reveals His character, His nature, His personhood. And so when we call upon the name of the Lord, or the name of Yahweh, we're calling upon God's presence. We're calling upon God's character. We're calling upon God's nature to deliver us, to cover us, to protect us, to shelter us. And here's the grounds for loving that beautiful name. For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. All of God's goodness is only for the righteous. Those who receive His mercy, those who respond in worship and obedience, and He will surround us with His favor like a shield. Psalm 5 is a prayer for protection from deception. And it's only before the one true God, in submission to Him and in worship to Him, that we will find the truth, that we will be defended from the deception of Satan and his cronies. It is God who by His Spirit will crush the lies about us, and establish us in Himself. He will surround us 
with his favor as a shield. Let us pray. Father, I thank you to know that you are a God of truth. And the Lord is a God of truth. We can trust fully in thee. And so, Lord, we cry out that you would protect us from deception. Father, there's a lot of lies out there. There's garbage and, and nonsense and all kinds of stories being told. Lord, deliver us from that nonsense. Rise us, cause us to live above it, and keep our eyes focused wholly and solely upon you. Lord, I pray that we would each examine ourselves. And Lord, if there's any of those areas, those six things that we mentioned in this psalm, in our lives, Father, may we forsake them. May we confess them and repent of them, Lord. May we not be found guilty of them. So that when the world sees us, they see not cowards, they see not deceivers, they see not manipulators. They don't see people of, of loose lips or lips that are swift to destroy. They don't see a people who are just flattering people. But rather they see people who speak the truth. Speak the truth in love, but speak the truth with all gentleness and patience so that we can point people to their need of a Savior. Thank you, Father, for our time in the Word. We pray this in your Son's precious name. Amen.